0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow coming to you from the campus of Tarleton State University on KTRL 90.5 FM. And so I want to welcome you to this another week, uh, another show, and also to thank you for those that regularly listen, whether that's uh, right here at the noon hour on Sunday, or it's through a podcast or through SoundCloud. Uh, Our previous episodes are available, and the reason why I mention that is not uh, uh, self-promotion as much here as talk about what we've been doing over the past six weeks, and that is bringing in people from our Tarleton community and from the region and beyond uh, to look at a number of different facets of the impact of the COVID-19 crisis uh, on our our society, uh, on our communities, uh, on our state. And so what I wanted to start today, the show, we, we do not have a special guest today, so I'll let you know that. It's a kind of a break from that interview cycle, but we will certainly get back to that in the weeks ahead. But what I wanted to do was to go back to uh, those interviews and just talk about some of the implications, some of the things that we've learned in speaking with a wide range of professionals and experts in different areas and how that helps us to understand where we are today, right now, in relation to this crisis. And so if you remember, we started out this this, uh, series uh, speaking with Dr. Dustin Edwards, a faculty member at Tarleton State, who talked to us a little bit about the science uh, of the virus and helping us to understand how this thing's being looked at, understood, uh, learning what we know or, or trying to learn more, more things uh, about it as we go along uh, with the hopes for a vaccine, with the hopes of good public safety, sound public safety advice uh, to help people uh, going forward, especially now if we look at opening back up businesses in the economy and, and eventually maybe schools and so on, churches, uh, place, other places of worship. The challenges that we're going to encounter uh, in uh, having this uh, still very present and, and very real and having an impact. Uh, so that, that's something that's very critical. And we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that here in just a moment. If you remember, if you've been following us, we, uh, the next week we had Travis Stilwell, the superintendent from Tolar ISD, talking about the impact on public education. We followed that with Jeff Sanford and Bill Leverton, uh, Jeff from the Stephenville Economic Development Authority, And Bill from the Small Business Development Center talking about economic issues both here in our community of Stephenville in the region and around the state. We also had Dr. Samantha Pell uh, speaking with us about the public health implications and challenges with this and then we wrap this up and as you can see this was a very diverse series of interviews but we wrapped it up with the heads of both major political parties in the state of Texas, James Dickey, the chairman of the Republican party of Texas and Gilberto Hinojosa, the chair of the Texas democratic party. And what I see is, is very interesting about bringing these people together and having these discussions. And now looking back and summarizing all of this is that I think there's some very clear Uh, things that we can see that are both challenges, uh, opportunities, information that we need to be aware of. But in terms of this show, with our focus being very much on politics, it's understanding all of these within that role of government uh, and how it relates to us, how it's addressing these issues, uh, how government, both local or including local, state and federal government, is engaging on the policy level, on the response level to the challenges created by this crisis. And so I wanted to go through in this first segment of the show, several of these areas and look ahead based on what we heard uh, from each of these people that we have interviewed. Um, I think if we go back to the interview with Dr. Dustin Edwards, we very much see, and again, this is reaffirmed on a daily basis, with the reports about uh, the coronavirus and how it's being addressed, is there's, there's still a lot we don't know. Uh, we, are, we are learning and experiencing things, new things every day. And the dimensions of this are changing in that as areas of the country are opening back up and, and how do we watch the numbers? How do we look at the, uh, the spread of this and, and what's happening uh, around the country and understanding uh, how that is happening and occurring? Uh, so, the the challenge here, I think one of the major challenges, and I was just thinking about this the last few days, is I'm myself missing baseball. I mean, this is the time of the year when we're uh, engaged in the early part of the season and seeing uh, whether this is a playoff year or not for the, for the team that we like. But we have a culture, we have a society uh, that is built around uh, a number and wide range of engagements. And, and what I mean by that is that there are so many different opportunities that are both recreational, that are uh, entertaining, uh, that, that we think are important in enhancing our lives. And we engage with those, uh, and in, in multiple ways on a regular basis. And now all of a sudden, because of this closing down of, of our society, our freedom of movement, uh, our ability to congregate, uh, that's had a a tremendous impact. It's not just economic in terms of the the resources that are spent on in these areas, but it, but it's also a a kind of changing culture, challenging our culture in the the way we behave, the way we act, the way we do what we do with our time and with our resources. And so I think this is very, very challenging uh, at this point. Uh, And so one of the things that we see in conflict here is that, that manner in which we live and the manner in which we engage with the world around us and the things that we like to go and do uh, with science and with the direction that a scientific look at this and finding out what works and doesn't work and what we need to do to be safe uh, and, and, and learning that and applying it. And so there is a very direct conflict there. And we see that even more so now than ever with these uh, moves of groups around the country to uh, uh, kind of force a reopening of states uh, in addition to just the angst that we might may all have of saying, okay, I, this is long enough. I'm, uh, there's not many cases around me. I'm stuck in my house. I want to get out. I want to go. I want to do things. Um, so it, it's manifesting itself in so many different ways. And I think one of the things that we have to be very, very cautious about uh, in, this, in this period, as we move forward, and as we know that there's still many more consequences and challenges that are ahead of us, is we, we really have to look at what is being learned by doctors and by researchers that will help us to navigate the weeks and months ahead. Uh, I think that is so very, very critical. We, we just can't let our, what we call cultural norms and our activities and behaviors supersede what we're learning about this. Because in the end, what's in the balance is lo- our lives and the well-being of so many people. And so I think what we learned and heard there from Dr. Edwards was that that, that this is gonna be a very challenging process. This is not something that we can put some information into a computer and overnight we have uh, answers and solutions. This, is, this takes time. It takes time to analyze all of this data, to see what's happening around the world, to see the consequences to work uh, in understanding uh, the biology that's here and how we counter that uh, in, in terms of the impact of the infection and, and immunity for it, uh, all of that takes time to develop. And so one of the things here is patience. It's patience, it's listening, it's finding out, okay, what do we need to do based on that knowledge that we're gaining uh, to protect ourselves, to protect lives, uh, to to heal the sick, help people overcome this uh, if they've contracted it. And, and so that, I think, is very critical uh, when we look at this ahead and, and not to ignore that. Uh, and, and hopefully, and one of the things that we need to advocate is that our, our government officials are not ignoring that as well, that we've seen some calls by some people that for the sake of, of our economy – we've just got to continue to move forward. We've got to get people out. We've got to get people buying again and, and doing and so on. Uh, that is critical. And, and that is a response that, that has to be addressed in some way. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but on the other hand, we've got to find the balance in there in maintaining safety, uh, protecting lives, and ensuring that the medical care is there that people need, as well as supporting uh, the research that is, is ongoing on this to, to find secure, safe uh, uh, countermeasures in order to uh, address the virus uh, and it and its spread and the fact that it may be with us uh, for a long time. So when we look back to at the interview we had with uh, Travis Stilwell and we look ahead in terms of public education, uh, this is an area where people are, are really wrestling with uh, what needs to be done in the months ahead to be prepared uh, for millions of school children and college students uh, to, and, and young people to be back in an educational environment. And how do you do this? I know right here at Tarleton State, uh, we're wrestling with this in terms of use of space and safety measures and, and so on to, to ensure the highest level of safety for our student community and our faculty and so on as we move into the fall semester. But you look at this at the public education level and you see some significant challenges. Uh, and that is the, the how do they adapt to an environment where social distancing, uh, may be necessary or a mask have to be worn. Uh, what, what are the options that they have there with sometimes limited resources and limited space? And so I think this is going to be a consume a lot of time over the summer of school administrators and even the, the general public. I think in some of the things, and we'll get to this a little later in the show when we talk about the general election and, and voting in the fall, but I think there's some of these things that are going to have to very much be community efforts. So what is it going to take for a school in a community to be back doing what it needs to do? Uh, to educate students and to provide a safe educational environment. And some of that may be outside the limitations of personnel and resources of uh, those school districts or of those individual schools. So I think it's very critical here that for all of us that we stay engaged with that. Uh, What is needed on the local level to facilitate the education of our uh, children and youth? How can we contribute to helping get things ready and be ready. And some people may not be thinking about that right now when uh, everybody's been teaching their children at home, they've been struggling through this balancing jobs or, or, uh, or not, you know, depending on uh, what the status of that is, but, but then trying to continue that education process outside of that uh, school environment. And that that's been very challenging. Uh, it's going to be very challenging in that environment in the fall as well. And I think that's where we need to be ready and be prepared to kind of answer the call of how do we, how do we help our schools and our teachers and our administrators uh, be ready uh, for what they need to accomplish in the months ahead in order to be able to, to have that safe, uh, productive environment uh, in, in our schools in the fall. We turn next uh, to the economic picture and we had great guests, uh, Jeff Sanford and Bill Leverton were with us and we really focused here at the local level uh, on our uh, economic progress and just what seemed to be happening here with construction continuing and uh, people engaging with the local economy. Um, We look at that on a regional level. Uh, We know that rural Texas, uh, has not been impacted uh, quite as much. And part of that is the number of cases. But part of that is the early sheltering in place, people staying at home, social distancing. Uh, we, we are seeing that change in some places, but not, not dramatically like we're seeing in, in other metropolitan areas. Uh, but we have to realize that this is and already is having an economic impact, both short and long term. And, and how we respond to this is, is going to be critical, but more importantly is how our uh, local and state officials respond to this. That is going to be very critical. And what I mean by short term is we're just now seeing the numbers uh, of the impact. So prior to the show, I made sure to pull up here the revenue uh, watch uh, that's available from the state comptroller uh, online. And what we've seen just in the last few months is a, a First, a, a, a small, back in March, we had a small drop in uh, uh, general revenue, uh, but that drop then was significant in uh, April. And so with the April reports out, we saw like a 10% drop uh, in, in sales tax. Uh, we saw uh, significant drops, and we're talking in the 40% uh, plus in insurance taxes, uh, oil production tax. Uh, cigarette and tobacco taxes, natural gas production—all categories are showing uh, significant drops uh, over uh, the, uh, this time last year, uh, and, and well, and just in the in the months. And so, what we were seeing, and just to give you summarize this in a way, is up through January of this year, we continued to see revenue increases, significant revenue increase across all areas of general revenue for the state. And so coming into the year the economic picture looked really good. It looked really not just on track but ahead in terms of the gains that we were making uh, due to oil production, due to uh, population growth and and the growth uh, in the economic uh, infrastructure of the state. Uh, That changed of course in March uh, with the beginnings of closing down uh, certain businesses with uh, the uh, impact on schools uh, the impact on uh, uh, retail and so on. And so we're starting to see uh, that impact. It's it saw it by the end of April. The hope was that opening up the economy, opening up businesses would help to mi- mitigate some of that in May. We won't know until the end of the month. Uh, but what we saw in April was a substantial drop. And just to give you an idea in terms of dollars, uh, just in looking at the uh, uh, April, Uh, sales tax revenue for the state. In January we had a over 3 billion uh, in sales tax collected and in April that had dropped to 2.5 billion. So a 500 million dollar drop in uh, from January uh, compared to January uh, in terms of sales tax revenue. So this is having an impact and we, we haven't had a decision by state lawmakers yet on cutting the state budget in this current cycle, uh, but we can anticipate that that is coming. And I think what what they're what what they're waiting on and and they're evaluating is to seeing can this rev back up? Can we get back on track at least in some way that 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 cut in state revenue that drop in state revenue will be limited uh, and that the cuts to state services will not be uh, quite as deep. Uh, we just don't know at this point. I think it's something that that is being watched very closely. Uh, we do have a constitutional amendment that requires us to balance our revenue uh, with the budget, our revenue forecast. I think it's coming in that the governor, lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the house consult with each other in determining uh, the level of the cut. And they're required constitutionally to move forward with that to make sure that the state is not deficit spending. Uh, So on the one hand, and I've taught Texas government for years, I kind of look at this in a positive way. There's other challenges and issues about our revenue structure that we can uh, delve into at another time. But I look at this in a positive way is that with Texas having that uh, restriction on deficit spending, uh, it ensures that the state going into a crisis like this is not always saddled with heavy, heavy debts. Uh, that, it, that it can't meet. In fact, it's required by law to cut the budget to meet whatever the actual revenue is that's coming in. So that's, that's a, a side of it that, that puts us in, in a time of crisis, uh, maybe in a little better shape. Now remember, we spend less per capita on government than any other state. So any cuts in Texas to our budget are going to hurt. They're going to, they're, they're going to cut into essential services. And so that is what we have to look forward to. That's the, the negative side of this, that the challenge is going to be where those cuts come and, and when uh, sometimes they're across the board, except for a uh, very, very, very essential services like law enforcement and, and our prisons and, and other, other areas uh, that are um, uh, critical to day to day stop state operations in terms of public safety and, and so forth. but, But they will be coming, and I I, I think one of the things that we need to think about in this, and and certainly hoping for uh, the best in the recovery of the economy, uh, but that going into the next legislative cycle, what is the long-term impact going to be? The short term, we've been through this before. We go through this about every 10 years as a state. There's some crisis, something that impacts. The last time it was a national recession that eventually impacted Texas, and we have to deal with these crises uh, financially in terms of its impact on the economy. But I think what we're looking at long term is uh, what will this uh, what will this look like in the next budget cycle? So we're in this, we'll be entering the second year of the budget cycle that was set by the last legislature uh, that met in January to May of 2019. Our next legislature will meet January 2021. And part of their uh, responsibility will be to prepare a budget uh, for the next two years after that. And so uh, this is going to be a very critical time because it's going to impact uh, what that budget picture is going to look like. So part of this is not to be on on this to be doom and gloom and so on. It's the focus here is our awareness of how this works and what the short and long-term impact uh, will be. Moving on to public health, Uh, I think in our interview with Dr. Pell uh, we saw some of the challenges that we see on health systems, uh, on the medical community, both public and private. Uh, We don't have a a huge public health system in the state. Uh, We've relied a lot on private health care. But what we see is that that this can become a significant challenge. Uh, Some of the impact has been on wellness care. Uh, over this period of time where we've had about six weeks of people not uh, uh, maybe seeking the care that they actually need because of concerns with the virus. We've seen the impact across the nation on supplies and equipment. We've seen the impact on the, the, the physical, emotional well-being of our medical care personnel. And so pushing this forward, uh, a big focus now is on a uh, adaptability and readiness. And so as we monitor the state cases and how the virus is, uh, what's its status in different areas now as things are opening up and we're just now entering kind of that two week period past the initial stages of opening up the state. And so we've certainly seen cases start to rise. They've not risen dramatically yet. That's uh, and and we hope that they don't. I mean, I'm not here, uh, 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 advocating that. But we we certainly have seen a rise in cases uh, in our metropolitan areas. And so the the critical questions in terms of public health is, are we ready? Are we we ready to handle uh, the numbers of hospitalizations and cases? Right now, hospitalizations are very low. I think the the Department of Health uh, Services has it at around uh, 1,800 uh, hospitalizations related to uh, COVID-19. Uh, so that that's a fairly low number given the healthcare infrastructure of the state, but that may certainly increase uh, in in the weeks and months ahead, or it may not in the short term. And then it may, when we get into the fall, into uh, the flu season and seeing how this virus, uh, what what happens with it at that time. So a public health system certainly uh, uh, is impacted, and we're, our concern needs to be. Uh, looking at that in terms of the directives that are coming from state and local and federal governments in the weeks ahead. The last area that we included in this series of interviews was our discussions with both chairpersons of each political party, the major political parties in the state, and that focus was really on how they had adapted during this election cycle Uh, the fact that in the middle of the cycle, post Super Tuesday, in the middle of a primary leading up to conventions in the summer, that the election uh, process and campaign process had really been turned upside down. Uh, so now runoff elections were postponed, campaigning moves online, it moves to uh, telephone uh, uh, campaigning, and and so this, this change... Uh, Uh, necessitated quick adaptation to how these parties are handling their uh, state conventions. We talked about the Democrats going to a virtual convention and the Republicans still having their uh, convention uh, scheduled uh, for later this summer uh, and and in July. So right now that's where it stands. Uh, Both indicated the impact on campaigns. uh, Both indicated the, and emphasized the importance of the election in November. Uh, the, uh, Gilberto Hinojosa, the chair of the Democratic Party of Texas, uh, focused and gave attention to their efforts to increase uh, voting options, specifically voting by mail uh, for the fall election. Uh, we've already seen Governor Abbott increase the window of voting uh, for the runoff elections in July, and we can anticipate that that may happen uh, in the fall as well. Uh, we also, just this past week, had an appeals court uh, ruling uh, that allowed the expansion of voting by mail uh, for the upcoming election. And so the Texas Tribune reported on this in talking about, or in, a, in, in stating that the state appeals court upheld a temporary order Thursday that could greatly expand the number of voters who qualify for mail-in ballots uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, The 14th Court of Appeals of Texas said it would let stand State District Judge Tim Sulak's ruling from last month that, that susceptibility to the coronavirus counts as a disability under state election law and is a legally valid reason for voters to request absentee ballots. Now, the state attorney general, Ken Paxton, has challenged this. He's been fighting this ruling, and it will most likely move on and be appealed by the state uh, to the Texas Supreme Court. But right now, it's in place, and the focus here is uh, broadening the access to mail voting for people who can identify that they have a susceptibility to the coronavirus. So they can just state that on there. I have a susceptibility. I don't want to risk the possibility of catching this by going and voting. And so I want to use the option for uh, an absentee ballot. Uh, So this is one uh, avenue, one step. And, of course, the, the, the leadership of the Democratic Party in Texas is advocating even for broader, just opening this up in order to allow voting by mail. Uh, The challenge with that, uh, certainly as we discussed, was the size of our state, uh, the fact that we may have over 11 million people voting uh, in November uh, in the fall election, and how do you uh, secure the integrity uh, of that system? And so I'm not really here today, I don't wanna bring this in as a topic of debate on whether or not uh, we should move to that level of voting by mail, uh, as much as pointing out some of the things that we need to be concerned about as we look to the fall election. And I've mentioned some of these on a previous show, uh, but I wanted to emphasize this here in light of our series of interviews uh, and really kind of expanding this uh, into looking at the general election. And so in the second segment of the show today, emphasizing voting, talking about this transition or expansion of mail voting. I think two things are that are very critical uh, for this fall election. Uh, one is that state leaders and party leaders should be working and focused primarily on the integrity of our system of voting. Uh, that has to be protected above all all costs or at all costs, I should say here, because here we are in a time of national and world crisis. And the last thing that we need in a time that already lends itself to instability is to have an election process go awry, to have an election process that is fumbled and thus the outcome becomes questionable. And thus that leads to further uh, potential for further political instability. I mean, that's moving down a road uh, that we don't want to go that we don't want to see uh, greater and very significant challenges to our system of governance because we're not prepared to conduct a general election uh, in this environment. And so I think the integrity of the system uh, is so, so critical and whether that means that we need to, to, to provide additional options and in in those options, ensure integrity. That that's what that's what we have to be looking at. And this is where the challenge for state and party leaders is to kind of come together around this, and and to say, well, well, if we need more options in order to provide a higher level of public safety for the elections, then perhaps we need more voting places. Um, we need uh, to a mixed uh, process here where you may not have enough voting machines to cover more voting places, but we can go back to the, uh, it wasn't too long ago that we were using the pencil and the ballots that, that you just filled out by hand. Uh, Can we have mixed systems in places? Uh, Can we look at expanding mail or the other uh, voting by mail or the other option uh, or another part of this would be more time, not just a lengthier period for absentee balloting, but more days on which to vote, uh, and, and emphasizing those days and encouraging as many people as possible to vote early. Uh, or uh, one thing that we talked about uh, with uh, Mr. Hinojosa was a, a voting holiday, uh, having a Tuesday as a day, that election day in November 3rd, to have it as a holiday uh, where people are off work uh, and can go and vote. Uh, I think those are things that are doable that we can look at short term, because one of the things that that came out of those conversations with both gentlemen is the uh, issue with polls and polling workers, the health of uh, polling workers, people who are there all day uh, operating those polls, uh, people who are uh, gone through the training that they need. Uh, but also many of them being over 65 possibly having some uh, health conditions uh, that may compromise them and make them susceptible to the virus Uh, also it was pointed out that the number of people volunteering and being prepared and trained for this that number is very low right now compared to previous election cycles and so i think one of the things that state officials and party leaders need to do is to engage the, the broader public. So a work holiday here may make uh, available more people uh, who are not as susceptible to the virus, uh, to be able to volunteer, be trained and be prepared uh, to work in uh, a polling site. Uh, so this is where, these are the two, the, the, the critical things, the integrity of the system, and then facilitating voting in a manner uh, that will protect, uh, uh, people's lives that will pr- protect, uh, will engage encourage public safety, the highest level of safety for people, knowing that it's gonna take more time if social distancing rules are in place at a time of the year when this virus may resurge and we have uh, more, uh, more, more cases maybe than we even have now. We, we hope that will not be the case, but right now in the trajectory of this, we have to be concerned about that and we have to be making those preparations now especially when we're looking at accommodating uh, that many voters. So I hope this helps in in going back and reviewing uh, what we've heard and what we've talked about over the last six weeks in terms of impact and really kind of looking ahead based on those conversations. And I would encourage you uh, to to look up uh, On Politics with Eric Morrow on SoundCloud, uh, wherever you get your podcasts and listen back at these interviews and then bring it together like we've done today uh, to help you engage and understand some of these critical issues uh, that are being impacted by the virus, critical issues that involve policy, that involve government at all levels and and how that government is being responsive uh, to these issues and needs and challenges and how we're planning and adapting uh, for what we need to do in the months ahead, as well as, Uh, Looking at how we continue to maintain the strength and and, uh, the trust we have in our voting process, the reliance that we have on services that government provides, uh, and how we at times too, move past the politics of all of this to really look at what the central issues are and how we can work together to resolve them. We're going to take a short break. uh, And when we come back in segment three of the show, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a follow up on an interview I had on AM News Radio in Cincinnati uh, this past week on the general election and how the accusations of Tara Reid related to Joe Biden are impacting uh, that election process. So we'll be right back after the break. for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. We're glad you're joining us today and we hope you engage with that first segment of the show focused on an overview of the interviews that we've done over the last uh, six weeks. And we turn now uh, back to the general election. We've talked about that some, uh, but I had the opportunity, it'll be a week ago, to interview on WLW 700 uh, AM radio in Cincinnati uh, and talking about the Tara Reed accusations uh, of, uh, to Joe Biden. Uh, and so these accusations that back when she worked in his Senate office, uh, that in the early nineties, that uh, she was assaulted by Joe Biden. And so she's come out with these accusations, uh, ones, which other, some have confirmed that, uh, they heard at the time or shortly after the event itself. And so the interview was not so much focused and that's not what I I do here. And what we do on the show is get into the, um, the, well, is she right or wrong, or, or what happened, or what didn't happen, and so on? A lot of that would be speculation on my part, uh, but the 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 side other side of it is the impact of that, and so we're looking at the impact on uh, the race to the White House, on Joe Biden standing as the the presumptive candidate of the Democratic Party uh, for the presidency, and then also the secondary question that uh, I talked about in that interview was the media's response and so we'll start there because that was the initial focus was why was the media so delayed in looking at this when the accusation itself uh, some of this had had come out last fall it seemed to ramp up even more uh, in in march and into april but it seemed like that the media coverage of this was not receiving uh was not being received at the level that we look back and we talk about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and uh, the, the the issues there and the, and the claims that we'll be making, the accusations that were being made, uh, that uh, uh, this was certainly not give, given that kind of attention. Uh, what I want to point out here are a couple of things that are kind of interesting because this is very much about politics and very much about uh, how this works within that political realm uh, and not not in terms of, of politics as an ideal and the, the different ways that can be looked at. I'm talking about the real kind of nuts and bolts and the way some of this actually works and can be some, sometimes challenging to us in understanding it uh, because we look at it on different levels and in different ways. But when you get into this political sphere, uh, these things become a little more convoluted, a little more challenging. Uh, the focus on them becomes a little more uh, complex. And so um, my attention to this uh, was looking at where this is happening in terms of uh, issues that are overshadowing the election itself, Uh, not just these accusations, but just the election process. And we've talked about that on the show just as recently in talking with the party chairs uh, in the state of Texas, Uh, and that is that this pandemic uh, has consumed so much of the news cycle and so much of the media's attention, uh, that, that that's one uh, aspect of it. It's not the only, because we, we do know that, and we can look at this, that, uh, even media has ideological, uh, uh directives guidance in that how they approach things and what they give attention to, uh, some more so than others. Uh, but the focus here one of the things that really kind of pushes this to the side, uh, is that, um, uh, uh, not only the, the, the time, how, how long ago it happened, but the fact that there is so much more that is on the minds of the people of this country right now. And so they're, they're just not engaged at that level. Uh, certainly there are people that, that, that are engaged that are involved in the election process that are in, engaged with the parties, but the rank and file person is is not deeply engaged with the election cycle because they're concerned about the impact on the economy, their jobs, their health, uh, their families, uh, their, their, uh, freedom to move around and do and go what, and uh, do what they want to do. And so I think this is very critical to understand, uh, uh how this is playing. Uh, the other part of this was a, a question about why such an intensive engagement with it by Democrats during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings as compared to what's happening now and why this kind of almost seems like an about face. And I think we can't just interpret that always in terms of, of consistency, consistency in terms of, of action and attitude toward particular events. And this is a, this is a characteristic uh, of, of politics in general uh, of, of real politics where, uh, that, that there are other factors that are controlling how people respond and engage with a specific situation. So when we look back at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, we see Democrats definitely engage because this is a nominee by President Trump, a Republican. This is uh, a nominee, a nomination process is being guided through the Senate by Republicans who have control of the Senate. Uh, this is something that gives them uh, cause and, and, and reason to engage and say, hey, wait a minute, we want to show uh, this up against uh, other things that we've uh, identified related to President Trump or uh, to the character and quality of his nominees. And so it is a political opportunity. Uh, no matter what the, 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 the moral or ethical engagement is, it's a very much a political opportunity uh, for position. Uh, and so this is very clear, I think, in, in this uh, uh, response to the tara read a- allegations is that we look at the Democratic Party process. We see that Biden has become uh, the presumptive nominee. Uh, we see a very low number of Democrats who think that Biden should be replaced with another candidate. And, of course, who would that be? Who uh, among the other candidates or anyone else that would have uh, the positioning that Biden has now based on the primary process to be able to be competitive? Because this is not, uh, we have to realize this is not about uh, as much about the, the, the quality of the person. This is at this point. Uh, I think that that has to be considered and it has to be considered by us when we vote, but it's about winning. It's about putting the, the person in a position who has the, 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 the best possibility of winning the election. And so to make that change now would be very detrimental uh, to that, because then you're talking about either someone who is already in the race that has been, that has, that has left uh, because Biden had the surge that he did beginning with South Carolina and following through Super Tuesday, uh, and them having to build that rapport, uh, on a national level. And, and who, who do you have that could come to the forefront at this moment, uh, and be able to, uh, to, to gain that momentum that they need to carry them in uh, to the election. So that is certainly not a possibility. And with the positioning here, you're not going to have Democrats coming out and applying the same, uh, analysis and the same criteria to their own candidate that they would to someone of the other party. The second thing that we have to look at here is public opinion. Uh, public opinion uh, still overall, when we look at the polling, it shows that Biden has ma- is maintaining a lead. He has a nine point lead in the national polls. He has, uh, he's leading in swing counties and swing states for the most part. Uh, and it shows at this point that public opinion is sh- is showing that this has limited effect uh, on Biden as a candidate. And so again, when you're talking about positioning for uh, winning the election, uh, it's 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 a no brainer politically. Okay, you're you're not even thinking about okay, did this happen? Did it not or whatever as Biden. Uh, um, uh, should this impact his aspirations to be president of the United States? Those aren't even valid questions because the trajectory is toward that election and toward winning uh, the White House. And then the third one is, is the, the, this is all wrapped up, and this is very much about politics, and that is the quest for power. Uh, the, we have to very much understand, especially at this level, but it happens even at the state and local level, uh, that the people are in uh, politics for a wide range of reasons. Some of those reasons may be very altruistic. That may be that they're there because they want to serve uh, their fellow human beings. Uh, they may be there because they want to represent the interest and views of their constituency. But there is also a very strong component of power that plays into this at at varying degrees. And it really depends on the person and it depends on the opportunity, the positioning that they have uh, in order to, uh, uh, to gain power. And so when you put all these things together, the quest for power to, to win an election like this, to be able to wake up the next morning and you're the president of the United States, uh, to uh, when you talk about public opinion and the impact that this is having, and then when you look at, at positioning within the party and the potential outcome of this, uh, it's really not a question uh, of, of the, the impact of this and trying to address it. Uh, so as long as that, that positioning remains and public opinion uh, holds steady, uh, there's just not going to be that, that impact of this on the Biden campaign. Uh, and then we wonder about where it'll be when we roll into uh, the debates and so on. Um, it's part of it on, 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 my part. Now, again, I don't know how their strategists are going to handle this and we'll just have to see when we get there, but I don't know that Trump has a, a, any kind of standing to be able to go after Biden on this matter. Uh, we, we, we already went through the, the 2016 cycle and we saw all the things that came up in terms of Trump and his behavior and his comments and his actions. And none of that uh, uh, de- really derailed his campaign. He was still able to get through the campaign and win the election. Uh, I, I don't know that it, a, a, a valid strategy for Trump in the debates is to go after Biden on this. Uh, I think that that's, that's something that they're going to have to Seriously, look at uh, because uh, Biden could just as easily counter counter with not just one uh, issue but multiple issues that would question Trump's character. Uh, so I, I think I think what we're going to see is that this is going to slowly fade from the news cycle, and we may not hear of it again uh, in the months ahead. Uh, and the only reason we may hear of it is. Uh, in in certain areas of the media that want to continue to follow this issue and try to push it in some way to influence uh, voters and whether they vote for Biden or not. So we will see. I mean, this is an interesting dynamic to see and and how this plays out uh, within the election. I want to wrap up the show today uh, just with a quick segment uh, on talking about the coronavirus, the pandemic and politics. So we've we've hinted all around this because in all the things we've talked about, there's some political aspect. But I just wanted to take us through this, and as the show is on politics, we we know that there is a definite political at, uh, impact of so many aspects of our world, our society, our nation, uh, and even our communities with this, and. What I wanted to do for you, just briefly, was talk about the different levels of government that we're following, we're watching, or engaging with in this virus, uh, in this pandemic, and uh, look at what we can, uh, what we may see in terms of politics and how politics play into the way that each level of government uh, addresses uh, this, uh, uh, the way forward uh, in the pandemic. So when we start with the local level. I think one of the things, and and we we don't see many times unless we're talking with our neighbors or we're, you know, having a cup of coffee with someone or we're listening to local radio like this, uh, that we hear about what's going on locally. Uh, But for our local political leaders and officials, uh, the critical issues here are going to be how they follow the directives of the state. We've already seen some conflict with that in certain areas, in large metropolitan areas where you have a county commissioner or a county judge or someone decide in a certain way that's contrary to the directives of the state. And so that's going to be uh, an area of political uh, tension uh, that we're going to see in certain places going forward. I think the, the real issue and challenge for local officials is how to handle uh, the healthcare challenges, the capacity of medical facilities, uh, combating the, the methods and ways in which the virus is spread. How do they, how do they address that? And so what we can certainly see going forward is there is gonna be this tension in some parts of the state between local officials and what they're trying to do uh, to, uh, to navigate this and the directives that are coming from Austin because we know the virus is impacting different areas in different ways. Places with low cases, much more likely to follow the directives directly. Places with high numbers of cases, much more likely kind of counter those directives, uh, and try to, uh, to limit, um, uh, and scale limit the number of cases and deaths on the state level. Again, there's certainly going to be concern for capacity. How do, how do we provide adequate medical care for the people who have the virus that need additional care and possibly hospitalization? But the political part of this is how the state responds to the direction of the virus. Uh, Because it's one thing to get on a track to saying, hey, look, we're just going to plow forward no matter what. We're going to move forward with the economy and and all of this no matter what happens. Well, we're hoping that the virus doesn't intensify. But what if it does? And how are state leaders going to respond to that? Because in one sense, if it does, some of them are going to be having to say, okay, uh, we were wrong. We need to slow this down a little bit. Uh, and we need to, to be more cautious and careful uh, moving forward. Uh, and so that's going to certainly be a challenge. And then the other side for state officials will be the economic challenge. And that is how do we deal with the uh, short and long-term economic impact? And how is that going to resonate with voters? How is that going to, uh, how are they going to be engaged in seeing that, especially as we go into a, a legislative session? Finally, the federal level. uh, This has been very much political, as we've seen. A lot of it is focused on the optics of it, how this is playing for President Trump among his base, how it's playing nationally. But really, the political is going to get very much wrapped up in the economic challenges uh, uh, that are going to persist, uh, both short and long term, and how the nation is dealing with this. Then it also bleeds over into an election cycle. So the fact that we are in an election cycle makes the federal response very political. Uh, it makes it every move uh, uh, can be critiqued by the other side. Every action, every word uh, can become uh, fodder uh, for the opposing party in terms of the election and leading to the general election. So those are, those are a few things. We'll get more in depth on some of those in the weeks ahead. But I want to thank you today for joining us for this episode of On Politics. You can join us right here on KTRL 90.5 FM each week at noon. And I encourage you to do so or to follow us on Facebook, listen on SoundCloud or where you download your podcast. Uh, This is Eric Morrow, and I look forward to being back with you again uh, next week uh, right here at noon on 90.5 FM. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.